This is Salt and Spine. When I got the idea for the book, it was because I noticed that there was like a void in the cookbook landscape. Like there was nothing out there that covered, that deeply covered the recipes that I love so much at Chinese bakeries. Hi there, Brian Hogan-Stewart here, and welcome back to the fall 2022 season of Salt and Spine. And you just heard from this week's guest, Christina Cho. Now, Christina grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in a restaurant family, and she took an interest in food and cooking at an early age. But it took her a while and pursuing some other career choices, like architecture, before she decided to launch a food blog, Icho Food. Before long, Christina had dove headfirst into recipe development and writing and started to share some recipes that were inspired by the items she'd find at some of the beloved Chinatown bakeries she'd visit. Before long, that led to an idea for her first cookbook, one focused on recipes from Chinatown bakeries. In fact, Mooncakes and Milk Bread, her debut cookbook, is the first cookbook to focus on Chinese bakeries, and it took home two James Beard Awards recently, including for Emerging Voice. Inside the book, you'll find dozens of recipes for Chinatown bakery classics and inventive spins, from pineapple buns to almond cookies to dumplings and more. And in addition to recipes, Christina offers up essays on the history of Chinatowns across the United States and the globe, and features some historic Chinatown bakeries. As Christina and I are both based in the Bay Area, I thought what better place to meet up than San Francisco's Chinatown, where Christina and I stopped by a few bakeries to discuss their history, try a few bites, of course, and learn more about her career and her cookbook. We met just as folks were preparing for the Mid-Autumn Festival, or Moon Festival, one of the most important Chinese holidays. It's this time of year when half of the book's title, The Mooncakes, are sought out, and we'll discuss that in our chat today. We've got a really great conversation for you today, plus we have a featured recipe from uh, Christina's Mooncakes and Milk Bread for the Yotao, or Chinese Donuts. So let's head now to Chinatown in San Francisco, where Christina Cho and I talked cookbooks. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, so excited to be here out in Chinatown with you. I know. I'm so excited. We're here in San Francisco's Chinatown, um, and we're here for the first stop on our little walk today at Eastern Bakery. Um, So maybe we can talk about the history of this bakery, and then, you know, we'll get back to talking a bit about your life, your career, your your cookbook as well. Yeah. So Eastern Bakery is the oldest Chinese bakery in San Francisco, Chinatown. I think it dates, dates back to 1912. So it's over 100 years old. Wow. Uh, the current owner right now is Orlando, and he is a really fun guy. If he was here right now, it's kind of, it's close, but... Yeah, uh, early today. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. He comes from a kind of baking family, but out of Peru. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting origin story. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. And Eastern Bakery is known for a few different things. They're known for making mooncakes all year round, which is really rare. Oh. Uh, it's kind of mooncake season right now because it's mid-autumn festival. Right. Uh, so a lot of bakeries make it just for like the month so that families can buy their mooncakes to share. But if you ever crave a mooncake, like in the summertime or, you know, yeah. like in the spring, like you can come to Eastern Bakery and get one. Yeah. And we are about to enter Mid-Autumn Festival. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when this is airing, we'll probably be in it. Uh, But can you talk about the mooncakes and what they are for people who may not have had that? Yeah, so mooncakes are a very traditional bacon. I rarely use the word like traditional too much, but these are 
a type of pastry that date back for centuries. And as I mentioned, they are typically made and served during Mid-Autumn Festival as a way to kind of celebrate the moon um, and also togetherness. A lot of mooncakes are round or circular shaped to mimic the shape of the moon. But sure. now they come in like all different sorts of like shapes and sizes and designs and things like that. Um, they are... I always kind of compare them to like a Fig Newton in texture. Okay. There's like a soft kind of dough crust on the outside. It's not like a flake of, it's not a flaky crust. It's more like kind of like a soft cookie crust. And then the inside are a lot of, there's a lot of different options. It could be red bean paste, white lotus paste. There's a lot of pastes and nuts, nuts, and they're pretty dense and sweet. Sometimes you might get a salted egg yolk in there, which is my favorite. Um, but they, they're an acquired taste, but I've grown to like love them throughout, throughout the years. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not to steal your word, but traditional, yeah. traditionally, these are things that you would buy at a bakery, right? Not something that, um, you would make at home traditionally, right? Yes. Yeah. I think you, you write in the book about talking to your grandmother about making mooncakes at home. And, and she was like, no, that's like something you have to be professionally trained. Yes. And like a really a learned skill. Can yeah. you talk about? Obviously, you have a number or several recipes for mooncakes in the book. Uh -huh. um, can you talk about making them at home and, and how a home baker can sort of approach that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mooncakes, I think the hardest part about making mooncakes is honestly acquiring the right tools and ingredients. Otherwise, I think that the process of making mooncakes is like relatively simple. You know, a lot of people make croissants at home and I feel like that's a lot harder than, make, sure. than making a mooncake. Um, so the mold, you can get either like a plastic or wooden mold at like a local like Chinese or Asian like kitchenware or home goods store or just off Amazon or Etsy. There's a lot of different options in our modern times to like get a mooncake mold. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a couple few ingredients that are a little specialized. There's this like kind of alkaline lye water that you can get at a Chinese grocery store and this syrup called golden syrup that you use for the dough so it stays nice and soft. Um, a lot of people make it themselves, but you can easily just buy it or order it online and once you acquire those things the process of making mooncakes very easy it's just making like kind of like this cookie dough uh crust and then the paste um in my book i purposely made a recipe for pistachio mooncakes that are very easy to make and you can make the filling in like five minutes okay. just with a food processor i yeah. purposely did that so people can feel like they can um so that they can feel like they can participate in the customs and culture very easily. But if you wanted to be like really old school about it and make a homemade red bean paste, you can totally do that. And I have a recipe for that too. It just takes a little bit more time. Yeah. And they're twice baked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Two bakes. Yeah. The first bake is just sort of to set the, the pattern in place. It's just 10 minutes in the oven. And then the second bake, you put on a really light egg wash, which gives the mooncakes their like kind of they, they should have this really nice sheen to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're, we're in Chinatown. I know in your book you mentioned, too, that there are even some specialty bakeries that just open for, like, a few months out of the year. It's often, you know, to make a special a special item mm -hmm. like a mooncake. Yeah. 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 Or, or they kind of just, like, switch over their production to just, like, only focus on mooncakes for a little bit. There's one bakery here, like, Golden Gate Bakery, that I think is, like, they have some like mythicism about it because sometimes okay. it's open and sometimes it's not. They kind of are only focused on like egg tarts, but during mid autumn festival, they have like moon cakes. Uh, we can probably walk by and see if it's open, but, okay. <laughs> but yeah. chances are it might not be. Okay. Well, so 
we'll like part it. of the hunt to see if it's open or exactly. not. Exactly. I love that. Um, well, we're, we're here at Eastern Bakery, 100 plus years old in San Francisco's Chinatown. But you actually grew up in Cleveland, right? And you had yes. a, there's a small Chinatown in Cleveland. You also write in the book about you would have, you know, annual-ish trips to Chicago where there mm-hmm. was a little bit larger um, Chinatown. Can you talk about your relationship to Chinatown? the one you grew up with in Cleveland and now um, Chinatowns across the U.S.? Yeah. So I I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and my suburb that I primarily lived in did not have like a huge Asian population. But whenever I would go to downtown Cleveland to visit my grandparents and feel immersed in their Chinatown there, I always felt like I was able to embrace the Asian, the Chinese side of me a lot more. so I think I have a lot of sense, like I have a lot of sentimental feelings towards like Cleveland Chinatown because in those afternoons or weekends I would spend at my grandparents, I was like, I was able to feel like a little bit more whole and yeah. feel comfortable um, there. And I felt that same way coming to San Francisco later. Um, I, I consider, so I used to live in inner Richmond, which is kind of like one of the many, I don't know, secondary Chinatowns of San Francisco. It's not like San Francisco Chinatown where you walk here and you see lanterns and you see kind of like the vernacular of like a Chinatown, like inner Richmond feels just like any other San Francisco neighborhood. But the people there and the food and just like the energy is different. And when I would walk down the street there, I could see, I would see people that looked like me. I could hear Cantonese spoken in just like a very normal way. And it wasn't like a spectacle or anything like that. And that was the first time I was like, I can just, I, I felt like I could just fully be myself at any given time. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a weird thing to say that it, t- it took me that long to feel that way. But I think when you grow up in a place that was, that was so different from your culture, like Cleveland, uh, you kind of develop this, like, I don't know, this dichotomy, this wall between the two. Sure. Yeah. Should we walk uh, yeah. to a, a new spot and, and sure. keep talking while we walk? Yeah. So, so you, you know, you're growing up in Cleveland, you're grandfather became a, a cook and the chef and opened some restaurants right and mm-hmm. and you were uh you write in the book about spending a lot of your childhood watching him um cooking can you talk about that impact yeah i a lot of people ask me if i was always really into cooking growing up and i would say the answer is no i was very much into eating things huh. and so i was always really curious growing up in my grandparents restaurant um just like poking around the kitchen just so i could get a snack uh-huh. <laughs> it was right. just yep. i really just wanted to try and like eat everything um and looking back on it it was a really fun and kind of I don't know, like magical childhood. Like I pretty much spent like the years of like zero when I was born until 10 years old. Uh, when I wasn't at home, I was like at the restaurant. Like that was kind of like my daycare. And so um, I would do homework at like the back bar while my mom was like mixing drinks or like sure. or like appetizers were coming out and stuff. And I remember uh, my brother and I always fondly look back at like the evenings when everyone was like shutting down and cleaning up. We would... Um, rollerblade throughout the restaurant you know and then sharing like family staff meals with like the line cooks and the uh, wait staff was just really amazing and kind of like fundamental to like how I approach food now which feel like I I like to have communal dinners and like provide like a generous spirit to the food that I make yeah yeah and for I think you mentioned in the book that for a while you thought about maybe following in your grandfather's footsteps either becoming a cook or a baker or a chef going to culinary school but you 
you landed on architecture for a while, right? You studied architecture. I did. I I did consider going to culinary school uh, for a little bit, but when I was in high school, I was just always drawn to the creative arts, I guess. Like I, I love to draw. I love to paint. Um, I also had this like strange obsession with, um, I, how do you describe them? Like the reason why I picked architecture, cause when I was younger, I love flipping through those like real estate booklets. Oh, okay. I don't know. Like, yeah. it's so weird. I like, like I, the houses that were for sale. Yeah, okay. exactly. Uh-huh. Like I love picking them up and looking at the floor plans. Okay. I don't know uh-huh. why I was just like so interested in like how like the different spaces were like configured and stuff. And then I like learned what architecture was and I was like, whoa, this is like a passion or a career that I can draw and be creative and like also kind of like problem solve with like the puzzle like treating the rooms like puzzles and so for a good chunk of my life I was like very very focused on architecture Uh and not that I still don't love it uh I just kind of lost my love of it as a profession yeah yeah and I is this about the same time you moved to the inner Richmond yeah about the same time um, I, re- I moved to San Francisco in like 2014 to work in architecture. I had okay. just graduated um, and I was working in architecture for a little bit, moved to inner Richmond um, and all sorts of things were happening. Like I was just like very unfulfilled in my career. And at the same time, I was like reading a lot of other food blogs and I felt like Ugh, I could I could do this, too. Uh-huh. You know, I love to take pictures. I love to like make things visually look good, kind of like with architecture and like buildings and stuff like that. But instead, it's like a plate of dumplings instead. Sure. And so I just started my blog and just kind of experimented each week. But it was the first time in my life that I was like so dedicated to like producing something every yeah. week. And so there, every week there was like a recipe, a story behind it, photos. And I eventually found myself like kind of thinking about my next recipe all the time when I was at work. Uh-huh. And I was like, maybe I should try to figure out a way to like make this like a real job somehow. You know, I see other people do it and I need to figure out a way for myself too. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you started to uh, publish a couple recipes of Chinese bakery style items, right? And uh, I think you mentioned in the book that there was some real interest in those and that people were writing to you or commenting to you like we'd like to see more of that and and that's kind of the the beginning of the inklings of this book right yes exactly like um well like when I got the idea for the book it was because I noticed that there was like a void in the cookbook landscape like there was nothing out there that covered that deeply covered the recipes that I love so much at Chinese bakeries so I kind of like just started like well let me just like experiment and see if I can make milk bread at home and try all these different buns. And I, it kind of clicked with me that like making this type of bread is not that different than like making like a brioche or like, or like a, a babka that I've made like before, you know, it's just something that isn't covered as much in media, um, whether it's in print or like digitally or like on TV and stuff. Um, and I was like, this is really not that hard. And I feel like more people should know about it. Yeah. And, and so you, you, did you start producing more recipes and testing more recipes for the blog first or how did it sort of evolve into something that really was a cookbook um so i think like the very first recipe that like really signaled to me that like people would care about this uh was the hot dog flour buns uh-huh. uh, and those make an appearance in the cookbook too but they first made an appearance on the blog and that was the one that like kind of got a lot of like comments and just like direct emails to me from people being like i love this i never even thought about making this myself sure. you know um 
Um, <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Um, and from there, my agent actually reached out to me, like kind of, uh, hearing about that recipe actually. So I kind of owe a lot to like the, the humble hot dog. Um, okay. and she's kind of started talking to me about like potential cookbook ideas. And then I brought up the bake, uh, the Chinese bakery concept and kind of just like started from there. I started writing about it more, started researching about it, seeing like what other, content was out there that covered it and again there was just nothing yeah you know so i pretty much just wrote about how like there's nothing that covers this i want to write about it i think i'm the best person to experiment with these different designs and like kind of like reach into the culture of it a little bit more and talk to different bakers yeah i mean right at the outset of the book you have a, a section too on how important it was to tell these bakeries stories and these recipes through a lens i think you use the phrase to a lens similar to their own. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So can you talk about how you felt, why you felt like you were the right person to write this book and, and, this, and to fill this sort of void sure. that was existing in the cookbook industry? Sure, and I just wanted to say that like, I always support people like exploring and trying different foods, but I think like right now we're in a time in like cookbooks and media that like the people who like grew up loving and loving this, this food deserves like a little bit of time to explain why it means so much to them. You know, I think we've kind of experienced a lot of, in the Asian community, we've experienced a lot of times where like the food that we love so much was kind of like demonized when we were kids, you know, and then like later on we find someone else who's like not Asians, like, oh, look at this like amazing thing I discovered. And everyone was like, oh, this is great because that person deemed it great, you yeah. know? Um, and so I, it, and in a way I also wanted to connect with the bakers and a lot of times it's easier to connect when like you kind of share this like similar background, you know, and understanding of the food. And so I wanted to show off Chinese baked goods in a way that highlighted why they were so important to me as a child, why they're so important to my parents and so on and so on. And I think someone that really grew up with it understands it in that sense. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're explicit about saying Chinese bakeries are not there to be discovered, yeah. right? They're there to be celebrated. They've yeah. been there for a They've long time. Yeah. They've been here. Yeah. Um, how has the reaction to the book been in terms of, of that, right? Because it is I, it, you've had a lot of wonderful reaction to the book, um, particularly because it is the first cookbook really focused on recipes from Chinese bakeries and Chinese bakery style recipes. H has there been some tension with that, like of this discovering this sort of, um, you know? I I personally haven't sensed any okay. tension. I think everyone yeah. has been so open and just genuinely excited about it, whether or not they were Asian American and grew up with this stuff or not. Sure. I think everyone has just been really respectful and just like I keep thinking of the word joy. Like there's been just like a lot of just like happiness yeah. around like the book and like learning about these recipes and bakeries. Um, I think the reaction to it has been beyond what I could ever imagine. When I first started writing a book, I had very humble goals i just wanted to sell a couple books sure. <laughs> and, and and to make maybe people like me who like grew up baking and not seeing recipes that like represented my culture like out there in a book you know like that yeah. was a, and i feel like that was like a very like niche market of yeah. people that want that but like so many people have been interested yeah. in the book and um another thing that surprises me is that the book has like reached a lot of generations I think I get a lot of messages from yeah. people saying like, oh, I gave this to my grandma who like or an Asian grandma who's never baked before, but loved this stuff. And like now later in her life is like learning how to do these things and practicing. And then on the opposite end, they give it they like make these things with their children. So I think that's what's really cool about the book that it's not so I don't know, like 
millennial, like of our age group, I guess, you know, Uh like it really like expands and like embraces the entire family. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think you've definitely sold a couple books. Yeah. Yeah. I sold sold a couple. So Uh, so so check mark on that goal. (laughs) Exactly. So we're, we're at our next stop here. I just saw one across the street. uh, Oh, wait. No, I think we're. I think it's yeah. We didn't go quite far enough. <laughs> so I was like, that is not a bakery. Yeah, I've never been here, but I just saw it and it looked pretty classic to me. So you can walk in. Okay. Okay. So, so these are. Um, have you ever had pork floss before? No. Okay. So do you, do you eat meat or yes, do you eat yes, bacon? Yeah, do, so yeah. uh, pork floss is kind of like it's like bacon if you like dehydrate it a little more and like pulled it apart into like wispy cotton candy like strands, and that's really popular in Chinese bakeries. Okay. Yeah. And that's this here? Yeah, that's this here. This this is just a uh, milk bread bun. There might be something underneath it, but it's primarily pork floss. Okay, I have, that's the topping. Yeah, that's the yeah, that's the topping. Okay. Um, you can see here, there's a lot of like fried stuff, which in the book, I kind of mentioned that a lot of things in a Chinese bakery aren't fried, or sorry, a lot of things at Chinese bakeries aren't even baked at all. Right. Uh, you see a lot of steamed things, pan fried breads, uh, this is like a deep fried kind of like gluinous rice ball that's like filled with like a red bean paste inside. Sure. So that's also really fun too. And there's a, a deep history to that, right? Because in a lot of Asia, yeah. Asian homes, there was not uh, an oven. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Steaming, like mean frying. Mm-hmm. Was, was my, my grandma has never, I, I, I think she has never even thought about turning on her oven uh-huh. before. It is, yes. it is just like an extra cabinet for her to keep like sure. pots and pans and stuff like that. So sure. yeah. Do you want to try a Chinese donut? Yes. Okay. That's this thing. Okay. I'll get. Oh yeah, they're in your book. Yeah, I'll yeah. get one of those, and then I'm gonna get a cocktail bun down there. Okay. Oh, and you see a moon cake. So oh, there, are, there are moon cakes yes. down there. So they're like kind of hidden sometimes. Okay. And then what's great about a lot of this style of Chinese bakery is that you also have like a lot of savory food too, like yeah. noodles and stuff. Uh, noodles and dumplings, and that's honestly like my my ideal breakfast. Get kind of like a like a milk bread bun and a couple of dumplings, and then like a like a cup of tea or something like sure. that. Yeah. And a lot of Chinese bakeries have both sweet and savory mm-hmm. items. Yeah. yeah. If anything, it's like probably a really great fifty fifty bl- blend of stuff. A lot of people ask me, it's like, oh, is your book like primarily sweet? And I would say it's it's probably like sixty five percent sweet, forty five percent savory. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm not sure, but this like might be a different style of mooncake. Um, I grew up with like the Cantonese style mooncakes, which is the one we see there that is traditionally stamped with like the intricate patterns. But if you go to like Shanghai or just like any other parts of China, they have their own style of mooncake. And so that one is like a flaky pastry. That's similar to like a puff pastry. That one's probably made with lard or something. Okay. And then the inside could be sweet, but um, I see a lot of times that there, there's like a minced like pork filling okay. in there. And so mooncakes can also be savory okay. depending on where you go. Okay. Yeah. What ties them all together is that there's like a crust and a filling. Right. And they're probably pretty dense or like, like I, the word is luxurious. Like, luxurious. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. just a special occasion, you know, like you might as well enjoy a mooncake. Yeah. And you typically won't eat a whole mooncake by yourself, uh, right? You'll, you'll split it. Typically, yes. Uh, the the pistachio mooncakes in my book, like those, I could eat like a whole one by myself. Okay. Um, but like the ones I grew up just sharing with my family, my grandma would buy ones that were like I don't know, like four by four inches, and they're like really thick. 
and you probably shouldn't eat and talk that all by yourself but you do you you know um but you want to cut them up into like little wedges and then like it's part of like the the custom like you cut it up into little wedges and everyone takes a piece so it's kind of like this like act of like family participating um in this activity together sure so yeah are also really great too those are called jung uh or like I think in, in English, a lot of times they translate it to like a sticky rice tamale because it's like very similar. Instead of a corn husk, you have like bamboo leaves. Uh, they're not made for Mid-Autumn Festival. They're made for a Dragon Boat Festival. But I feel like those are along the same tier of like traditional thing, like a traditional thing that's made for like a specific holiday or time of year, sure. uh, similarly to like a moon cake. Sure. Yeah. So I've made those a few times too. All right, can we get uh, one gaimei bao? Yeah, and then one yoto? Yeah. The one sweet, one savory. <laughs> I don't. Yes, I love the balance. Thank you. Do you want to try these right here? Let's try them. Okay, do you want to start with sweet or the savory thing first? Um, what do you think? Uh, savory? Sure. Okay. I'm just going to tuck this in here. Oh, yeah. We're just going to tear this apart. So, this is a Chinese donut, uh-huh. um, or you can call it Yotao. Uh, my mom calls it fried ghost uh, fried because Yotao sounds like like oil fried um, and and ghost, I guess. Okay. So she she always okay. told she always described them as that when we were like little kids. And I feel like you rarely eat a Chinese donut plain like this. Um, a lot of times you dip it in like a congee or juk um, or for something like a little sweeter, you can drizzle some like sweet and condensed milk on top, but they are really good by themselves. So I'll, you want to take a picture? Sure it. <laughs> um, it's large, it's a lot larger yeah, than it, I thought it yeah, would be it, from the photos in your book. Yeah, well mine, so they probably have like big industrial, like commercial sized fryers. Mine sure. is as big as like the biggest pot of oil I can fry. So I kind of designed it to like fit like a normal kitchen. Yes, so, okay. so I'm going to tear it apart and like the cross sections like really nice and airy. Yeah. Like that. So you can have that. It's just like fried dough. Mm-hmm. It's real good. Dough. Yeah. Yeah. Really go light, light and airy. I, I love it just like in soup and stuff. Kind of like instead of like a crouton or whatever sure. type of bread you dip in here, this is like the bread that you would put in. So. Now this this would be unsimilar to a milk bread base. Uh-huh. No. Um, Milk bread is has a little bit more fat okay. in it. Like there's like it's milk. Milk. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like a little bit more enriched. Um. And this bread is like very yeasted, I would say, compared to like the milk bread, so that this gets like a really airy texture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the milk bread bake, you would bake it. And this one, this dough is designed to be fried. It's the best way to best sure. way to cook it. Although, sure. like, I never tried baking the yotel and seeing what happened, but maybe I'll try it. Yeah. No. I feel like it's meant to be fried. No. <laughs> yeah. And then this one. So I can't confirm if this is like a great one or not, but gaimei bao. Or cocktail buns are my favorite Chinese bakery bun. Okay. Um, I put a lot of emphasis on that recipe in my cookbook because I wanted to make like my platonic ideal of like a guy my bow. Sure. Um, but what it is, so it is a milk bread base. Okay. And inside, is there any selling inside? Oh, there is. Okay. <laughs> I like open up like there's nothing there. It's all over here. So you can have half. I would take a bite right there where there's the coconut filling. Okay. But the inside is like a coconut sugar blend. Mm-hmm. So coconutty. This is actually a very good one. It's very, very good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 
These are my favorite. Um, this might be like, I don't know, it's my favorite, but it might be like the second most popular bakery bun. Sure. A lot of people love to get pineapple buns. Sure. Um, or you call them bolo bao. There's no pineapple in it. The topping of it just makes it look like a crackly, crackly pineapple. Uh -huh. But if I, when I pick, I always pick one of these. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great, yeah. great mm -hmm. go-to. Delicious. Yeah. It's soft. It's buttery. I love coconut. Well, we'll finish chewing and okay. then we'll yeah. resume our chop. <laughs> <laughs> so we're a show on cookbooks. So I always like to ask people what, what, you know, cookbooks have been meaningful to you or authors have been meaningful to you. And I think it's also such an interesting question for you because mm -hmm. you've written kind of the first cookbook ever focused on Chinese bakery style mm -hmm. recipes. So it's, I'm imagining it's not like you had 20 other cookbooks of the same yeah. genre to, to refer to. So um, I'm curious, you know, what your cookbook inspirations have been and what your relationships to cookbooks is. Yeah, I, I read cookbooks like they're novels, uh -huh. you know, um, which maybe that was helpful for me as a cookbook uh, writer that I knew that there would be people out there that would probably be reading it cover to cover, sure. you know, so like really pay attention to like all the words that you actually have in there. Sure. Um, but I, I have a, I think I have a pretty big cookbook collection that's like diverse, but I have this like very, I, I've started collecting these like vintage Chinese cookbooks. Uh -huh. Um, I like right now can't remember the, the author's name. There's like a bunch of them, sure. but they're like so thin and little. They almost look like little children's books, but the styling of the photos in there are like so of like the seventies and uh, the recipes are written in such like an interesting way. But I love looking through there for just like conceptual inspiration. You know, I'm like, Oh, like I never thought about someone making this. Like there is this, they, one of the, little vintage Chinese cookbooks I had was a little bit more dessert focused. And that was like the closest I ever got to like finding a book that covered Chinese baking. Sure. And they had these like really interesting, like chrysanthemum cookies in there that were really artful and beautiful and filled with like a red bean paste. And I was like, Oh, like people did care about like making beautiful cookies like this, you know, like it is part of like the culture. Um, so I love flipping through those yeah. for inspiration. And then, um, when I, and this book didn't come out that long ago, but I love flipping through um, Tartine Revisited, like the yeah. the newer one. Uh -huh. um, and Liz Pruitt uh, wrote an endorsement from my book. And like, it was really meaningful for me to like have her say such like nice words about it because I went to one of her uh, cookbook events when her book first came out. And I was in the process of like writing my book proposal. And she just like had such kind and like supportive words for me. And so I always look at that book like really fondly. And it's just, it's also just like a really beautiful book to like get inspiration from. Yeah, yeah. So, but you're right, there there weren't that many cookbooks that I could draw a lot of great uh, support from, sure. I guess. It was a lot of starting from scratch. Sure, yeah. We've talked a lot about uh, mooncakes. We haven't talked as much about the other half of the book's title, yeah. Milk Bread. Um, so could you talk about Milk Bread and the Milk Bread recipe that you provide? And there, there's a particular uh, ingredient that makes Milk Bread retain its moisture so well. Yes. Uh, so the other half of the title, um, Milk Bread, I really like the contrast of like mooncakes and milk bread because mooncakes are something like super traditional and milk bread. While it is very much part of like the culture um, and foundational to so many recipes, it's relatively new, like uh -huh. 
like it became really popular in Hong Kong in like the 50s and 60s. Um, and so that's really totally new compared to like mooncake that have been made for like centuries, sure. you know. Uh -huh. um, but milk bread is the enriched foundational bread that's used for most of the sweet and savory buns in my chapter. So once you master that, you kind of unlock so many other recipes and every single time you make it, you get better and better. Um, so I mentioned it's a enriched bread. There's butter, milk, and eggs in there. And then the secret ingredient, where it's, it's, it's a combination of ingredients. So it's a right. Tong Zong uh, starter or roux. And what it is, it's like cook, it's a mixture that you cook down milk and flour together. So it forms this paste. And what's happening is that when you cook it down, you create this really hydrated kind of paste that you add into your dough so that your milk bread dough can handle a higher percentage of hydration without actually weighing down your dough and making it sticky. Yeah. So right. that's why when you add it in there, your dough is like very like soft and pillowy and it stays moist and soft a little longer yeah so that isn't to say that like if you didn't have the starter in there it wouldn't like it would stay soft for like a day or two but if you want it to be like extra soft and stay fresh as long as possible you want to make the tongzong sure sure yeah 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 i love that yeah something that's interesting is how homemaking was never like a very strong culture in huh. Chinese American or Asian American kitchens. It just has a stronger like savory cooking culture, you know? Right. Um, and not that like the book like kickstarted it, but I think like the book is like an aid to help in creating that culture. Like yeah. I never grew up making, it's not like I grew up making like chocolate chip cookies with my grandma or anything like that. We just like didn't do that. But this past weekend, my mom and I made mooncakes together for the very first time. Okay. And I think that's very cool that like, now people are creating those those types of memories and like a home baking culture for the first time. Yeah, you know it's it, it's it's weird to think about like a new culture that's starting now. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> if that makes sense, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. And you you mentioned um, that you didn't grow up baking chocolate chip cookies with your grandmother, but I know that you did have this really special moment with your grandfather, and mm -hmm. he had a sesame cookie recipe. Yes. Um, and you were able to make it with him one time yeah um, that was the, that's probably the, the only baking memory I have of like my grandparents and that my gong gong's almond cookies are very sentimental to me for that reason um he like oh, did I say sesame? oh sorry uh what did I say <laughs> I did I say almond okay yeah yeah almond cookies yes, yes. um and I had always heard when I was growing up, I had always heard about like how good his almond cookies are from like my mom and my aunts and stuff like that. I'm like, well, why, why doesn't he make us any, you know? And, and everyone's like, oh, he's too old. He doesn't, he doesn't bake anymore. You know, he's, he's retired now. He's not going to do it. Um, and the summer before I left for college, I asked him if he would make almond cookies to me. So I could like try them. And he was like, yeah. Um, and he pulled out this like really wrinkly, like old piece of paper that was like the base recipe, but it was like scaled up to make like hundreds of, you know, like sure. re restaurant quantity, like almond cookies. Sure. And we had to like do some math and like scale it down to like make like two dozen or something like that. Uh, so we spent the afternoon making cookies together and I remember really loving them. Um, and that was um, like kind of the last kitchen memory I have of my grandpa too because a few months later that falling like winter he uh, passed away so um, I I always think of my grandpa whenever I make those cookies and I think of that memory um, and I'm, I'm happy that I was able to kind of like crack the code on the recipe it like I, I feel like I'll probably be iterating it for a lifetime 
to try <laughs> to try and see like how much closer I can get to it. But sure. I think this is like a very good start. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. very cool to see other people making making that cookie in their in their own kitchens and with even with their grandparents. I just saw someone sent me a picture of it of their cookies that they made with their mom yesterday. I'm like, that's so sweet. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're we're headed to our final perhaps final stop yeah let me like confirm it real quick okay <laughs> so I, I used to come i used to come to little swan um in the morning on my way to work i used to like kind of work near like levi plaza so it's not right, right. here but if i got off on the bus at the right stop i would take a few extra minutes to come here sure so this is set up like how i would say like a really classic cantonese style bakery is set up you have like acrylic or glass cases that are like filled with every bun that you could find and then there's like a cafeteria tray with tongs and you just like load it up yeah so uh, pick and choose yeah yeah right now er everything's individually wrapped uh for covid but normally it was like kind of like piles of of baked goods sure, sure. so yeah so you have like buns but then like the other bakery they went to didn't really have cake so yeah. that's like something that they have here and these are like Swiss rolls that somehow have become like very popular in Chinese bakeries, even though they have like a European influence. But like a lot of a lot of the stuff you find at Chinese bakeries have like kind of multiple cultural influences in there. Yeah. Because a lot of a lot of Chinese baking came from Hong Kong that did have that kind of like amalgamation of Asian and also Western culture. Right. Yeah. And even right here, we have sweet and savory. We have the matcha yeah, uh, yeah. red bean and the green onion yeah. Swiss roll. The, the the savory Swiss roll is an acquired taste because okay. it is like a it's like a, a chiffon cake, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> that, that has green onions and pork floss in it. Uh -huh. So I wouldn't say it's my favorite thing, but I like that it is ex it, it exists sure, for sure. people who might want to try that. Sure, of course. Yeah. 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 They have egg tarts of like the favorite amongst many like it's like my parents favorite thing uh we typically like to get egg tarts at dim sum though because they come out like really really fresh yeah and really flaky and that's just like the best time to eat them and i'm sure these are really great too but if, if you make them at home then you can have them like right out of the oven yes yeah so. the freshest possible yeah yeah and then this is like something so i also for inspiration for the book, I just went to bakeries and just see what they had. Like I've never seen this before. Yeah, and I, and I was like, "What?" Tuna like tuna cheese bun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. egg tuna cheese bun. I've never had one, never made one. Maybe I'll attempt one, but it's just really cool. Like each bakery really does have a, its own like unique offering. Yeah. So this sounds good. That I also have never had this, but a pumpkin yolk bun. I can just imagine it. Like it's it like a pumpkin custard with like a salted egg yolk. Yeah. I think that's a very common flavor profile in like Asian cooking. Yeah. But I can also see it as like a just like a, a more sweet bun. Lots cool. of good stuff here. And then the milk bread, of course. Of course. So you yes. can just always just buy that instead of making it yourself. But <laughs> yes. good. I always think it's best to get a mooncake from a bakery. It's a little fresher. Sure. Um, but if you go to like a 99 Ranch or any type of Asian grocery store, especially right now, there's gonna be yeah. stacks and stacks of tins of mooncakes that you could buy. I even sell them at Costco too. Even fresh from a bakery though, uh, enjoyed great two to three days later. Yes. I think, right? Oh, well, yeah. um, if you buy it, well, if you buy it from the tin or like from a bakery, uh, you can probably just eat it right away. Okay. I don't know okay. how, how long they wait to eat it, but um, that's only a recommendation in my book because 
when they sit a little bit longer, the crust like softens and kind of mimics like this like fig newton type of texture. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't say that doesn't mean you can't eat one fresh. Like I've definitely okay. have have tried them fresh, but for the full experience, you can like wait a day or two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this was so fun. I want to ask you too. Um, obviously, you know we've seen a lot of challenges for Chinatowns in the past several years. Um, what do you, how are you sort of thinking about Chinese bakeries in the year 2022 and beyond? And, and how does your book sort of contribute to their legacy? Yeah, I, I have been seeing this kind of like new wave of new Chinese inspired bakeries lately, especially in like the Bay Area, um, where they're kind of experimenting with like traditional flavors that you would see at Chinese bakeries, like, I don't know, using pork floss or salted egg yolks and things like that, but maybe like, incorporating it into like a croissant dough um, or utilizing some more like French pastry technique, which is like really interesting. Like in Chinatown, uh, like out of the Mr. Jew's, uh, Mr. Jew's restaurant, they have um, Grand Opening, which is like a very inspiring bakery of like a Chinese owner and stuff like that. So um, I think that right now we're, we're seeing that start and I hope in a couple of years you start to see that as like kind of like a new typology of bakery. Yeah. You know, like we will see like these kind of like new wave Chinese bakeries just as common as we see like a new croissant, like sure. focused baker. I feel like we see those all the time. Like, oh, look at this like new place to like get a croissant. But like, what about this new place that we can get like a really great pineapple bun? Yeah. You know, I would love to like see that one day and talk to friends about that one day. Like we need to try that new spot. Um, and. I think that mooncakes and milk bread, I hope at least that it inspires like kind of like a new generation of bakers to embrace their, the side of themselves and incorporate it into um, like American culture in a sense, you know, and feel comfortable and feel empowered to do that um, and produce like the best baked goods that they can. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for walking around with me yeah, through San Francisco's so Chinatown. Yeah, and for being on Salt and Spine. Of course. Can't wait to come back and eat more biscuits, I guess. Yes, with you. let's <laughs> yeah. do it. Let's do it. <laughs> and that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, saltandspine.substack.com. There you'll find a recipe for Christina Cho's Yo Tao or Chinese Donut. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast, and we'd love to see your ratings on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen now offers both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia and Omnivore Books, and to Monique at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.